God, I thank you so much for tonight. I thank you that these women have sacrificed time out of their busy week right before school starts and right before everything gets kicked up to learn about your word. And God, I ask that tonight that the only thing that they would hear are the words that you want them to hear. Father, I pray that you would shut my mouth and open yours. Um, I pray that, um, that we would have... Um, ears to hear and hearts that are open to you. I pray that you would just remove any distractions from this room and that we would learn something new about um, the Bible that in turn causes us to worship you and love you more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So um, I'm Rachel Smith and I am a Thursday night Bible study leader down at the Dallas campus. And um, I'm excited to be here with you. We have been covering, this is week five of the Psalms, and we have been covering um, all the different types of the Psalms and tried to also teach you some things about the structure and some of the elements of Hebrew poetry. So week one, um, Janet kicked us off, and um, if you missed me last time, but you have heard Janet, I probably should give you a warning. Um, I am a former math teacher and cheerleading coach, high school math, so um, our um, style of speaking is a little bit different. Um, I get a little bit worked up, and I get a little bit loud and rowdy, and Janet is very soothing and calming. So just a fair warning for those of you who um, missed me last time. Um, But in all of the Psalms, one of the things that I talked about last time is that we see as a fallen sinful people how to relate to a sinful, I mean, uh, to a holy God. We are sinful people and he is a holy God. That's the 103 fever, y'all. How he wants us to share our sorrows, our joys, our triumphs, and even our fears and insecurities with him. Um, We kicked it off in Psalm 1 and we learned um, about just the wisdom that is available to us through the Psalms. Then we went to Psalm 145 and Janet talked about a praise psalm and how praise on our lips increases the delight in our heart. And then I came up and I talked about Psalm 116 and um, just a psalm of thanksgiving. And we talked about filling God's ear with thanksgiving, either out of an overflow of your heart or out of a sacrifice, something that costs you something and how offering that thanksgiving, sometimes it's not going to be the easiest thing that you're going to do. Um, But we offer those thanksgivings to a God who is listening, who bends down his ear. Do you guys remember who bends down his ear to listen to us? And then last week, Janet talked about Psalm 79, which is a psalm of lament. And she told us that there are over 60 psalms of lament, which means, for you math people, that that is 40% of the psalms talk about grief and talk about how to lament properly in front of a holy God, that we are not only expected Uh, that we are not only allowed to grieve, but that we are expected to. And those Psalms will show us how to rightly express our emotions and our grief to a holy and righteous God who, though he is holy and righteous, still sympathizes with us and grieves with us. So what does that look like? And Janet walked us through what that looked like last week. And that, to me, I don't know about you guys, but that was very, very powerful to me because there are so many times, um, I don't know if it's just that it's um, a woman thing or if it's just a humanity thing, but or if it's just... Maybe it's a Texas thing that I think I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and just move on. Like no matter what is happening, that I'm supposed to be the strength and the fortress of my family and I'm supposed to just go. And so last week gave us permission to sit and lament and to not be okay. And just what does that look like? And that kind of sets us up for a little bit of this week. This week, we're going to talk about Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is a psalm of confidence. Now, um, the very first week that Janet was up here, she asked a lot of you, or she asked what was your favorite psalm. And there were several of you that said that 91 was your favorite psalm. And so I'm honored to teach on it. And I hope that when you leave tonight, you leave with a different way to look at it 
but that you leave knowing that the safest place that you can be scared to death is in the hands of our God. That is what Psalm 91 is all about. The safest place to be scared to death is in the hands of our God. Now, when I say that it's a psalm of confidence, um, what does that mean? Um, It's an orphan psalm. We don't know who wrote it. Um, We affectionately call it an orphan psalm. We don't necessarily even know when it was written, except that it was written in the time frame. Now, it is 91. Moses wrote Psalm 90, and there are some elements of 91 that sound um, kind of reminiscent of the plagues and of the Exodus, and so there are some people who think that Moses wrote it. It's pure speculation. We talked about that last time, that unless the Bible says it, then we're not sure, but I think that you'll see that there are some things about this psalm that sound a lot like Moses. Um, but we don't know who wrote it. But it is a psalm of confidence. Now, when we say psalm of confidence, what does that mean? A psalm of confidence means that we can have confidence in our soul's eternal security. We can have confidence in our soul's eternal security, and we're going to talk a lot about that later. The imagery of this psalm is suggestive of a battlefield or warfare. There are some people who don't call it a psalm of confidence. There are some people who call it a warfare psalm, and rightly so. Um, But We're going to call it a psalm of confidence, and we'll talk about why. Now, a reminder from the last time that I was up here, there are two major themes of the psalm in general. The first theme is our God is king. The second theme is our king is coming. Now, in Psalm 91, you will see seven times that the Lord refers to himself in this psalm as a refuge or a fortress. And that would support and uh, lend credence to the very first of those themes, that our God is king. Because when you are king, there is some expectation that you will fortify, that you will strengthen and physically protect the people in your kingdom. That's one of the roles and responsibilities of a king. So this psalm is going to support that. It's going to um, fortify that theme. The idea that God is a refuge or a fortress occurs 87 times in the Psalms, in all of them, and 86 times, other than those 87 times that it's all uh, that He refers to Himself as a refuge or a fortress. There are other images that we think of, like he, that He's a rock, that He's a strong tower, that would that you could also use a synonym for refuge or fortress that the Lord refers to himself as that. So 87 times that he actually refers to himself as a fortress or a refuge, 86 times he refers to himself something very much like it. So clearly, God is up to something here. There is something to be said about the the fact that God is our refuge and God is our fortress, and we're going to see that in Psalm 91. Now, um, so we're going to go on and we're going to read the psalm. The first two verses, the structure of this psalm, Um, verses one and two are his description. This is going to be the psalmist description of God, but also um, we're going to see later that we can translate it. This is our description or God's description of himself to us. Verses three through 13 are going to be his deliverance and 14 through 16 are his devotion. So we see his description, his deliverance, and his devotion. So with that, let's read the psalm. This is the New English English translation. And so if you have a different part of your Bible, the reason that we gave this to you um, was so that you could just write all over it and take as many notes as you want to. You're also free to look in your own Bible and to read and write in your own Bible. I'm just a person who has not yet experienced the freedom to write in my Bible. So 91.1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day 
or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High God, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not even strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. And verses 14 through 16 is God talking. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And with that, we're just going to dig in. So the very first two verses of this psalm start with some really incredible imagery about who God claims to be and who he is and who this psalmist is relying on him to be. In the first two verses alone, this psalmist uses four names of God. The first one that he uses is at the end of, the, of 1A, which is most high. The name there is El Elyon, and it is the supreme God. This is the descriptive title most often used in Hebrew poetry, so most often used in the psalms. And it is just this picture. It says most high. There, Literally, that's kind of self-explanatory. There is no other God. There is no higher God. There is nothing higher than our God. Then the second... Um, name is assigned to him is Almighty El Shaddai. And if any of you are Amy Grant fans, then we can sing this in our song. Um, All-sufficient God, Almighty. So literally, like, he has all the might. So he is the most high God. He is the most mighty God. And then in verse 2, the psalmist comes in and does something really beautiful. He calls him Yahweh, which is the Jewish name for God. It is when Moses was sent to Pharaoh and he said, who do I tell him that you are? And he says, tell him that I am Yahweh. Tell him that I am who I am. And the great thing about that was that this was the name that Jewish people used for a cup for their covenant God. So what this psalmist is saying here is um, he is the most high God. He is almighty, but he is also the God that I am in covenant with. So he was reminding himself potentially, but also he's reminding us that we are in relationship with God, whether it's a covenant, the Old Testament covenant or the New Testament covenant, that we are in covenant with this God. And then the last one that he used is Elohim, creator, one true God. I found an article um, that a rabbi had written on the name Elohim, and it said that um, the, it describes this name as God as creator, sustainer, and provider of all life on earth. So when you look at these first two verses, they provide this layering, this deepening of who God is according to this psalmist. So the very first one is that God is supreme. He is over everything. There is nothing outside of his control. There is nothing outside of, of, of his power or his might. The second one is he's almighty. He has all the might. So there's, he's supreme, he has all the might, but in the midst of that, I'm in a relationship with him. He is in my covenant God that I claim. And then the fact that God is, that was powerful enough to create, sustain, and provide means that he didn't exhaust all of his power when he created everything, but that he continues to have enough power, not only to create, but to sustain and provide for. So there's this, I don't know if you guys can think on, <clears throat> you probably don't because I'm 
odd, but um, think of like, like a number line with a continuum. There's arrow this way and there's an arrow this way and it stands for all of infinity. And what this is, there's an umbrella here that says God is over all of this. He is the supreme God. He has all the might. The center of this then is going to be the covenant that I have with him. And then his power is going to stretch as far as the east is from the west. There is nothing outside of his power or control. And so you get this image of a very strong, very powerful God in the first two verses. No wonder this is a favorite psalm, right? Like we can look at this and say, that is a God that I want to take refuge in. That's a God that I want to be my fortress. There's no other God before him. There's no other God after him. There's no one that can touch him. He's the most mighty of all. And his power is never exhausted. That's beautiful. That's gorgeous. So then we go on in verses three, And it talks about he delivers you from the snare of the trapper. And in these next 10 verses, we're going to see traps and plagues and terror and arrows and darkness, destruction, a severe battle in verses 5 through 7. And um, just that he's going to make all these promises and statements. And we're going to dig into these. Now, verse 3, he delivers you from the snare of the trapper. Now, what that means is literally that he is going to deliver you um, from a hunter's trap. And when you think about like, okay, so if I were, like there's this popular show on right now that's like something with Bear Grizzlies, and all I think about it, like the guy's name is Bear, but I keep thinking about like hunting a bear. Um, If I am hunting something and I lay out a trap, generally what happens if I am a smart hunter and I want to catch something is that I disguise the trap. Now, this sounds familiar to you and to me because we know that we on this earth are hunted individuals based on the Bible and talking about 1 Peter 5, 8, saying that there is an adversary, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is active. So in that imagery in the psalm in verse 3, when they're talking about a trap, um, the imagery is actually past tense that you have already been trapped and that God is going to deliver you, but that he's going to deliver you for, from now until eternity. It's a pretty powerful picture. And then from deadly pestilence. Now what this means is any natural force that comes against you um, in your physical nature that seeks to kill you. So it could be um, a flood, it could be any of the plagues of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. See, um, It could be any illness that is seeking to end your life. And so he's saying that, um, that God is the deliverer of that. It is he who delivers you from this. Now, in verses one through three, we see these incredible, powerful images of God. And what I want, my, my hope is that you would see that that is, if you are an enemy of God, that that is the image that he portrays when you come at him. So if I'm God's enemy and I come at him, these are the things that I'm going to see. I'm going to see that he is all powerful, that, is, that he is almighty, that he is everything um, that you want to take refuge in. Um, and that he is hard. Like when I go to the gym and I see a bodybuilder and, and I'm like, like he's hard. Like I don't want to go hug him. It's not like a gentle association that I have with him. And that's times infinity what this is saying that God, when you're an enemy coming at God, that is a force, not a force, but the force to be reckoned with, right? And then there's this contrast in verse four. And I think that this is probably why a lot of people love this psalm is that our experience with God is in verse four. This is what it feels like to be, to be 
to take God in as your refuge, to be taken in by him. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. Now, pinions, um, with them, I looked it up and I asked my vet cousin, um, is that when, you, when there's a bird and it spreads out its wings, the pinions are like the very, very, very outermost of this. And so literally what happens is God is going to take you in and he is going to cover you off. Now, what do we, God does not really have feathers, right? This, isn't, this is imagery. The Hebrew poet here is using imagery. And, and what do we know about feathers? They're soft. They're soft. That our experience when I brush up against this very strong, all-powerful, almighty God is that he is soft. That his refuge, the place that I take refuge in him, it is a soft experience for me. He will completely cover you with his wings. Now, um, he will cover you with his wings and his faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. Now, when I first read about shield and bulwark, the um, other versions might say shield and buckler. And this is a reason, um, this is for free, this is not necessarily related, but uh, when I very first read this, bulwark um, could mean buckler. And when I was looking up what a buckler was, there was one commentator that said it was the person that buckles on your, army, on, on your armor before you go into battle. And I was like, well, that's great, that's awesome. Well, it wasn't right. Um, so... <laughs> This is just for free. Um, just do your research, ladies. So um, what that is, is that uh, when you are going into battle, so, so verses 5 through 7 are going to be images of a battlefield. So when you are getting ready to go into battle, you have a shield as your first defense. And what happens is that um, a lot of times in biblical battles, this is not always, but a lot of times you had kind of this... Um, terrain that wasn't necessarily, wasn't flat like a battlefield. And so you had them, the armies that would mount up on, on either side of the valley. And then um, what they did is they just rushed into the valley and they just met in the middle and just clashed. And, and whoever had the most standing at the end was who won. Now that wasn't always true, but it was true sometimes. So what they would do is the people who were up on the ledges to thin out the enemies that were coming their way is they would have people who were um, shooting arrows at the enemy while some of their men were coming down into the valley to do hand-to-hand combat. So you needed two shields. One shield was literally like um, a shield that you would carry on your arm and it would protect you almost to 180 degrees. So you would, it would be rounded out to about here, and it would cover your whole head. And the goal of that was that you would be able to defend the shields that were coming as well as anything that was coming at you from this way. So that's your very first line of defense. That's your shield. And then your bulwark or your buckler is a secondary shield. You would shed the first one after you got past, after if you were one of the lucky few that made it into hand-to-hand combat. Um, you would then take the smaller shield that you could then e- more easily defend yourself, but that you could fight around. Does that make sense? So there's two shields. And I love the imagery here because what God is saying is that um, the thing that we can put our trust in, if I'm going to put my trust in something to defend me from arrows and from swords, like you better believe that I'm going to test that sucker out, right? Like that is going to be metal and, and very, very strong. Like there's going to be no way that I'm going to want anything to be able to pierce through that shield. And so the thing that is our shield here, look at this, ladies, the thing that is our shield is his faithfulness. It is tested. It is true. He has a proven track record and it is our first line of defense. It's our very first line of defense as we go into any kind of a battle. Now, as I said before, verses 5 through 7 are images that you would see on a battle. And 5 through 6 talk about terror at night, the arrow that flies by day, 
pestilence that stalks in the darkness, and the destruction that lays waste at noon. So what would happen is, I, I told you that they would kind of mount their offenses, and they would be up on the valley, and then they would rush into the valley at daybreak. And so generally by noon, um, the battle is over, and whoever has them, literally whoever has the most standing wins. Okay, this is not always true, but this is the imagery that we see here. So the terror by night would be usually associated with the night before the battle. You, don't, you can't see your enemy at this point. You don't know what they're going to come equipped with. You don't know what they're going to come at you with. But God is saying that he, I will be your refuge so that you don't have to fear the terror that is an unknown, unseen enemy. You don't have to fear that. Then when you get to battle, you know that there are going to be arrows that fly. You don't have to fear those either. Now the pestilence uh, that stalks in the darkness... For those of you who haven't been around church for a while or who don't know about Old Testament stuff, um, Moses was a character in, it was not a character, excuse me, he was a man in the Old Testament, and he was somebody that God chose to deliver the Israelites from the, their slave, from their slavery underneath the Egyptians. So he went in and he said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. And um, if you have been around church for a while, then you're doing this. Um, and he went in and he said, let God's people go. And Pharaoh was like, no, and he did this nine times, well, ten times, nine times, and then um, God then sent plagues um, to say, this is who I am, and you're dealing with a, ver- a force to be reckoned with, and I want my people to be free, and if you um, don't know about all that stuff, we would love you to have, we would love to have you in Exodus in the fall and the spring, um, but the, the pestilence that stalks at night is reminiscent of the very last plague, the tenth plague. What happened is that God did all these miraculous things and Pharaoh's heart was still hard. He would still not let the Israelites, his chosen people, go. And so Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. And so God said, okay, your heart is hard. I'm going to have to do this hard thing to get you to let my people go. And so he told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and to put the the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. And then an angel of death came and killed the firstborn of every family that did not have the blood over the doorposts. And so if I'm an Israelite and I know that this is what's going to happen and I have that blood, you better believe that I'm going to be sitting there with my firstborn son and I'm going to be nervous as all get out. And when that dawn breaks and my son is still alive, there will be rejoicing in my heart. But when you think about if you weren't an Israelite at this time and you didn't know and you put your baby to bed and then you went to bed and you woke up and your child and you heard this collective wail as everyone woke up, that would be horrific. And so the idea here is that there is a very real enemy that not only is it, is it unknown, you can't see it, but it is stalking you. Like there is this force that is stalking you, that is seeking to devour you. That's the picture that we have here. And God tells us, you don't even need to fear that. You can rest easy. And like, it's one thing to know that you can rest easy and to actually be able to rest easy. I understand that those are two very different things, but that's what the psalmist is saying here. Because you have made God your refuge, because you have chosen to put yourself into the, in, underneath the, pin, the wings of this God, of this almighty, all-powerful God, because you've chosen to do that, you can rest easy. And then the only way that you are going to participate in this battle It says, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the Lord paying back evil for evil is what this is saying. The only way that I'm going to participate is I'm going to lift up his wing 
and I'm going to see that he has been faithful again to what he said that he would do, and I am still protected. And the imagery there is beautiful and is wonderful um, and is powerful. Now, we go on, and in verse 10 it says, No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in your hands so that you don't even, like, like this is the picture of if you throw yourself off a cliff, the angels are going to catch you in such a way that you don't even harm yourself. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't want to try that. And the young lion and the serpent will trample, you will trample down. Now, this psalm, up to this point, makes some amazing claims some amazing claims of physical protection. And I want you to keep that on the back of your mind as we move forward. But this, the, the verses 3 through 13 make some incredible claims of physical protection. Spiritual also, but physical protection. And then in verses 14 through 16, this is my very favorite part. You see the devotion of God, his devotion to his people. He makes seven I statements in these seven lines. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. And literally what that means is if the 10,000 or if the 11,000 fall around you and you are vulnerable and you're the only one standing, as in verses, in verse 7, he will literally pluck you out of the battlefield and set you back up on your side and so that you can just see what's going on, so that you're viewing the battlefield from afar, from a place of safety and security, that you are up literally out of the battlefield and that you are high away. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. And with a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Now, if you count, because I'm a math person, so there's seven statements there. The fourth line from the top and the fourth line from the bottom, the very middle line, the heart of this passage that God is speaking to all of us is I will be with him in trouble. So how do we reconcile those two things? Number one, that's awesome that God promises that he will be with us in times of trouble. That's incredible. That's an incredible promise that we can still rely on today. But how do you reconcile the fact that God is going to physically deliver you in the first 13 verses, but that he's also going to be with you in the trouble that you thought he was going to physically deliver you from? And at first glance, that seems kind of odd if you think about it. It should say, don't you think that based on the very the first couple of verses, it should say that I will remove him from all trouble because he's covered, because he's, he's covered by my wings. He's covered by me. He, he's taken refuge in me so there won't be any trouble left. And obviously I'm using hyperbole here, but I would like to warn you that there are some teachers that will tell you in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, in the state of Texas, and in some other places and all around the nation that will tell you that you can take these claims of physical protection and you can name and claim them and that you could go and throw yourself off of a building and in the midst of it, feel no terror. This is what they'll teach you. Feel no terror and that an angel will literally rescue you from the bottom and, and that there will be no harm done to you. And I would tell you to be careful with that and just warn you about that because we need to look at these things in the context of scripture that we're reading. So... Um, um, there is a quote from a um, really smart commentator on this topic, specifically on claiming things about physical protection, namely from this psalm. And I'd like to read it to you. It's, it's long, um, but take it in. It's worth it. 
So the Old Testament blessing for Israel, so the covenant that Israel and God were in, included national prosperity and divine protection. So long as Israel walked in step with God, there was not a nation that could defeat her in battle or successfully invade her land. Okay, this is like the fire by day and the pillar of smoke by night, that kind of a thing. There was a a guarantee of physical protection. The godly Jew could legitimately claim the promises of Psalm 91 in an hour of danger and could expect, though, that although people fell all around by the thousands, neither the flying arrow nor the sinister pestilence would come near him. So in this time, the time that this was written, this person could legitimately make some claim, as long as they were walking in step with the Lord, they could make some claim of physical protection of that day. But we are not Old Testament Hebrews. We are New Testament Christians. For us, God's blessing are essentially spiritual rather than national or temporal. We have no unconditional guarantee from God that so long as we live godly lives, we shall escape the ordinary terrors of life. Now, that to me is a very hard truth to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow. That I, because I'm just on the wrong side of history, can't enjoy physical protection from the Lord. And that's not what this is saying either. We do enjoy some measure of physical protection from the Lord. We know that because we're still here in an evil, awful world. Like you're still sitting in this room. The Lord still has a purpose and a plan for your life. So we know that we enjoy some physical protection, but we cannot claim it. We can't do anything that would tempt God in, in such that way. Now, it's one thing for me to say that. It's one for, thing for this really smart commentator to say that. But there's someone else in our Bible who said the exact same thing. Now, if you have been around church at all, verses 11 and 12 of this um, psalm might have um, sounded familiar to you. So if you go back and you look at verses 11 and 12, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Now, verses 11 and 12 are the verses that Satan used to tempt Jesus in the second temptation in the wilderness. And some of you are like, yes, I knew it. High five, way to go. Um, I did not know it until I studied for this. True confession. Um, But these are the words that Satan used to tempt Jesus as if to say, Go ahead, throw yourself down. You're the son of God. Surely he is going to rescue you. And ladies, I firmly believe that if Jesus had decided to do that, that probably he would have been rescued by angels because the Lord's like, no, 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 that's not the plan. Come back, come back, come back. But that's not what he did, and that's not what he said. What he said, he, Jesus then quoted Deuteronomy 6 right back to Satan. He said, don't put God to the test. That's in Deuteronomy 6. So Satan took something from from Psalm 91 that Jesus would have been very familiar with and twisted it and manipulated it to try to fit his goal. Now, um, if there is anything that we know about Satan, that is true to character for him. He is a manipulator. He is a deceiver. He is after our souls. He is after our physical well-being. And he is... um, a lion that is seeking actively whom he can devour. So then, what, what do we take from this psalm? This promises a lot of physical protection, so then what, do we, what can we take from it? When we know that in the New Testament, John the Baptist was decapitated, Stephen in Acts was stoned for preaching about Jesus, and all but one of the disciples, we think, died a horrific death after being beaten, stoned, set on fire, Um, crucified on a sideways cross. So then what can we claim? Well, what we can claim is that this psalm is here for a reason. 
and it is speaking specifically to the safety of our souls. As New Testament believers, we can rely on this psalm to speak to the safety, the eternal safety of our souls. It is speaking to the souls of the saints on a fallen earth. We can be sure that the Lord is, it is the Lord who delivers us from the snare of the trapper, that it is the Lord who delivers us from bondage, from times when we cannot seem to overcome that one thing, whatever it is, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's a lack of trust, whether it is pornography, whatever it is that is that one thing that you just cannot attain freedom from, God is saying you can in him. Now, will it be easy? No, maybe not. There are some people that are miraculously freed from things all the time, and I know that that happens. Has not been my experience, but that's okay. Because I know that my soul, if I have to endure it for the, whatever my thing is, if I have to endure it for the rest of my life, it's enough for me that my soul is safe in the hands of God, that it is the safest place to be scared to death. There are going to be times where I'm going to face trials and tribulations here on this earth. It is a guarantee. It is a guarantee. But the things that scare me the most, my kids getting sick, something happening to my husband, a car wreck, um, a plane ride, I am one of those. I'm a white knuckler on a plane. And that sounds silly, but to me, it's not silly because I'm picturing a horrible, fiery death crashing out of the sky. So that's, I know that it sounds silly, but it's not. Whatever it is, that thing, I am choosing to take refuge in the one, the only one who can save my soul. I'm choosing to say, I'm terrified of this, but I know that in verse 15, you promise that you will be with me in times of trouble. You did not promise to take me out of troublesome situations, but you promised that you would be with me in times of trouble. Not only did the psalmist claim it here, did God say it here, but Jesus said it later, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And ladies, my challenge to you tonight is to say, really examine your heart to see, is it enough for you that the only thing that we're guaranteed Hardline guaranteed is that our soul can take refuge in an almighty, all-powerful, God, uh, earth-sustaining, creating God, and that we will never be taken by the enemy. We will never be without him. Our souls will be with him now, and when I close my eyes here, I will wake with him in eternity And I've come to a place where that's enough for me. Does it mean that I don't have anxiety and fear? No, I have a lot of it. But I've come to a place where I've said, Lord, no matter what comes, no matter what waits for me tomorrow, I trust you and I trust that you are good and that you are right and that's enough for me. Now there's one other quote that I would like to read you and it's by Charles Spurgeon. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey here on earth and hasten him to his reward of eternity. Ill to him is not ill. I love this part. It's so contradictory. Ill to him is not ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. We know that that's true. Sickness is his medicine because it drives us closer to the Lord. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him for everything is overruled for good. Happy, 
from verse from someone is he who is in such a case. He is secure. His soul is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. So ladies, it would be my encouragement to you to take refuge under the wings of our good, almighty, all-powerful, impenetrable God. He is a soft place to land. You are completely covered, and your soul is safe with him. The very last verse of this says, With a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. I don't know of a longer life than I can live than a life with him in eternity. And if you're not somebody tonight that has made the decision to follow Christ, I would love to talk with you about it. It has been life-changing for me. So, I hope tonight that you have learned that though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the safest place to be scared to death is in the hands of our good God. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you are trustworthy. I thank you that you have proven yourself for millennia. I thank you that I don't have to worry about whether or not you will come through for me or whether or not you will win the war. It might not seem like you're winning the battle, but God, I know that you will win the war. I thank you that I can place my confidence in you. And God, I ask that whatever you've done in the hearts of these women, that you would seal it. Lord, that it would stick. And I ask that as they go to their groups, that they would find vulnerable and authentic women with which to share their hearts. And Lord, for the woman who hasn't yet made the decision to follow Christ, God, I ask that tonight would be a place where she has heard the truth of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.